Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings and welcome to hell. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and yes, my mum does know I'm out. And looking just as good, but without being as overrated, I am Ash Versus. (laughs) This episode aired on the 4th of October 1994, and there's no change on either chart as Wigfield's... is still top of the pops and Harrison Ford in clear and present danger is still at the top of the UK box office so what do we do when we haven't got anything else to cover I guess we'll quickly cover the games charts unsurprisingly Mortal Kombat 2 is still top of the game charts that changes next week because Doom 2 is out but there's no change there either other than the impending shadow of Doom 2, do we have anything else going on in the gaming release world, Luke? Not in the gaming release world, but from the world of TV, we've got a fair number of like debuts uh, coming Ooh. our way. So Brum has returned for a new series on BBC One on October oh, 6th. <laughs> I do like Brum. Part of that was filmed in Borton on the Water, which was one of my favourite childhood destinations as a very, very small ash because they had a model village and there's two times you find model villages awesome. Pre-10 and like post-70. That's yeah. the main time. I'm not saying they're not good and I'm not saying I wouldn't enjoy a nice model village now, but those are the kind of peak kind of target audiences. But they did have an amazing model railway museum. And for little, little Ash, that was as good as an arcade. That was good as a Butlins. <laughs> that was good as a trip to the circus. Lots of trains, choo-choo. Yeah, you want to be a big cop in a small town? Scoff up the model village. 
Uh, also on October 6th, the debut of new TV soap Revelations, a series about a clergyman and his family written by Russell T. Davis. The series, which only aired in some ITV regions, ran for two seasons and featured Davis's first gay character, a lesbian vicar named Joan, who comes out during a two-hander episode with another female character. Uh, I mean, it might have aired in my region. I have no memory of it, though. It might have aired in my region. I certainly have no memory of it. I mean, for me, my knowledge of Russell T. Davis really kind of started with, I guess, Queer as Folk. Yeah, that would have been my sort of introduction to him as well, yeah. But the other two ones uh, that debuted a couple of days earlier that really sprung out to me, October 3rd on Sky One, Jerry Anderson's Space Precinct debuts. Working the mean streets of Demeter City is never easy. My girlfriend's dealing flash, and I don't know what to do about it. But when drugs are involved... Jesus love it until they OD, then boom. The only way to solve the problem... Hit the streets, people. I want them closed down and locked up when I want it done yesterday. ...is to eradicate the source. The all-new series of Space Precinct, Saturday at 7 on Sky One. Oh, now I didn't see it on Sky One, but I did see it on BBC Two. And this was, I think, one of the last efforts by Jerry Anderson to escape the shadow of the puppets because he always wanted to do things that weren't puppets. Like the the puppets were an end to a means at the time. And Space Precinct was going to be the big show. It was going to be a futuristic procedural police drama with aliens and monsters and and like big budget and it didn't quite work i loved it i Mm. loved space precinct i had space precinct the comic i remember having the comic magazine they released it was a big time thing at the time because we've also got mortal Kombat, the comic magazine out there street fighter the red dwarfs magazine yeah, yeah. I, I didn't have Red Dwarf, but I did have Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. I remember begging my granddad to buy us that when I went up to see them in Skem once. Uh, but no, but Police Precinct, they had one and they had a line of toys. I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. But I can see, looking back at it now, why it didn't take off. Uh, of the Anderson oeuvre, it is not one that I, uh, I... I mean, I definitely watched it, like you, when it was on uh, the BBC. I don't even think Anderson marks really rave or anything about Space Precinct. Like, it's not the one that I hear people talk about. Like, it's always Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, Stingray. It's basically all the, the marionation stuff. I mean, Space 1999 also has its very dedicated fan base, mainly people that are big fans of pink wigs and jumpsuits. I kid. <laughs> but also I don't. Uh, For me, it was always the puppet series because they're the ones I grew up with and it's carried me over to the later iterations as well. I'm a big fan of the CGI Captain Scarlet. While the CGI isn't the best, they made a really dark kid show and that um, half CGI, half model Thunderbirds that they've done. Yeah. It was really good. I've heard really good things about it. And the last thing of note, I was wondering, curious if you remembered this one. Do you remember when BBC had their answer to Art Attack called Smart? And it was hosted by Mark Spate and Zoe Ball. And it was the return of Morph. I had completely forgotten about it until you just mentioned it. But no, that actually ran a while, didn't it? That ran for some time. Yeah, it really did. I'd, like you, forgotten all about it until I saw it up on Wikipedia and I was like, smart. I don't know, Googled it. I was like, oh my God, yeah, I do remember this. So Mark Spate, Zoe Ball, uh, Kirsten O'Brien? 
I think, was also one of the later hosts. I think so, yeah. And Jay Burridge was an, that's a name that I don't recognise. Mark Spate is a name and obviously Zoe Ball, but Jay Burridge was one that I didn't recognise at first. I and mean, I just did a quick check. And Jay Burridge, while I don't recognise the name either, actually left Smart and left broadcasting and became a graphic designer and snowboard inventor. Well, crikey. <laughs> I'm very curious as to how that works. Because didn't someone already invent the snowboard? I mean, can you invent something something twice? I don't know. The Sega kept trying to do it with the Mega Drive. Hopefully he was more successful than Sega were in constantly trying to reinvent the Mega Drive. Yeah, and you are not wrong by saying this ran for a while. According to its Wikipedia page, its last airing was on August 11th, 2011. But anyway, we have teased this up from last week's episode because we said that we would wait until we had the same movie and the same song at the top of the charts and actually we've got the same game as well. So we could open back up and take a massive look at the big purple column. So what have we got in store for us this month? Brace yourselves. The big purple column is back. And to quote Dom at the beginning, yes, I have returned to lower the standards of this fine magazine once more. I could go into a lengthy explanation as to why I left the show and why I'm back, but again, does anyone really give the slightest one-eyed python shake? Well, guess what, Luke? We did, and we talked to him extensively about it quite a few weeks ago. Suffice to say, I was a bit grumpy with how things were going, so I left. The good news is that this series of Games Master will be the best ever, and the magazine will reflect this. So it's time for the welcome return of Dominic's Big Purple column i have missed it i mean as much as i very much enjoyed going through other parts of the magazine um there's always there has been that part of this show that has been missing which is looking at whatever pithy thing dominic has to say about the video games industry this month or whatever else he's doing really i mean we had that entire section on the manic street preachers before i am still disappointed that we never got the dexter fletcher column yeah, and I, I I would have been so interested to find out whether it was written by him or ghostwritten by him or something along those lines. It's weird that they teased it and never delivered. Well, thankfully, we can rely on Dom to deliver in spades. Who knows what he will deliver on? But let's dive into this month's column, this marked return, where he says that each month I will pick a special day I've had just so you can see what an incredibly fruit-filled life I live, except this month when I've had a special week in a bit, because I've just got back from a trip to LucasArts, who have parked their backsides just outside San Francisco, at the Lucasfilm Ranch. Mm -hmm. I went over with about 10 other highly respected computer games journalists, including Simon Corain from this very magazine. Anyway, George Lucas is an incredible man. He's the man behind Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and uh, Willow. Hey, hey, let's not dunk on Willow now. If you're going to do that pause, you want to like just, I don't know, dunk on American Graffiti or THX. And I, I quite like American Graffiti, but it's usually the thing that people dunk Lucas on. And of course, it's too early to dunk on episode one, but that exactly. would have literally been like shooting fish in a barrel. But he's the man behind LucasArts, easily the best PC games programmer types on the globe, and also the man behind the THX cinema sound system, which means absolutely nothing to me because I'm deaf in my right ear. Huh. I did not know that. I've got a small list of questions in my head that I regret not asking Dom. <laughs> That's now on that list. He's also a little bit strange. You see, he built this huge Skywalker ranch in the middle of nowhere, designed to be a place where artists, technicians and his media pals could work in peace and tranquility. Fair enough. The thing is, though, he invented a story that goes with it. The tale goes that there was this old fishing captain who decided to retire in the late 1800s and built this home for his family. So everything on the ranch is tied in with this. If you're having difficulty understanding this concept, then join the club. 
I didn't know this about the Lucasfilm Ranch. No, I didn't know either. We were given a tour of the ranch, which was great. Then all the journo boys and girls got to see the archives where they keep all the little models and things used on Star Wars. Except I didn't. I had to go to the offices of LucasArts to do a recce because I was filming a feature for Games Master the next day. And that was where I met Steve Shaw and Tim Schafer. They are the lead programmers and project leader on Full Throttle. Tim is a legend. He's the man behind The Secret of Monkey Island 1 and 2, Day of the Tentacle and Indiana Jones. I guess that's Fate of Atlantis. That's what I would figure as well, yeah. Steve is a top bloke. Both are members of that incredibly small club, Americans with senses of humour and irony. Man, he's gunning for everyone today. (laughs) Anyway, you'll see the interview I did with Tim and Steve on Games Master sometime in the series. I hope we are able to keep in all the stuff about the various toys they have, because toys are cool. They are very cool. They are cool. It's good to know that someone that I admire uh, greatly as Dominic Diamond also agrees with me that toys are cool. Apart from the LucasArts stuff, the rest of the time was spent hanging around the hotel pool, where we terrorised many a young American child with our pool and football orientated stunts. After the LucasArts business was concluded, all the journos went back home, but I, along with my bird Mifanwi, who featured in Series 2... Yeah, brackets not her real name. Yes, well, yeah, because Mifmore's her real... Like, I'm not even sure if Mifmore's her real name either then, because, like, she was a rally driver in Series 2. I think Mifanri is her real name, and I think it's just Dom being Dom. But anyway, they went down to Costa Mesa in California for a few days relaxing surfing. And then that comes to something Dom alluded to in our interview, the day I nearly died. You may think I'm joking, but I'm one of the best boogie board surfers in the world. I won the American Open for the first time in 91, and I haven't looked back since, except to see who believes all my lies. Anyway, this trip, I nearly died. The scene. Laguna Beach. The waves are mental. 15 to 20 feet and very rough. There are three solid California boys wearing wetsuits because they're soft and can't stand the cold, and me, not even wearing glasses. Riding the waves on this day is like being at Alton Towers without the cues. If you're lucky, you stay on the board. If not, you die. It's that simple. After a while, it gets a bit rough, so I decided to come in. Except I can't, because the current is too strong. The next wave is the mother of all waves, and it has my name written on it. What's worse, it's written with a C instead of a K at the end. I get in position, start kicking my little Scottish legs, and time it completely wrong. The wave breaks on my head. 17 million tonnes of water, and I'm sent hurtling down to the bottom where I smack my head. I'm now pooing myself. If I pass out, that's me gone. No more Mannix, no more Celtic, no more Games Master. Dexter gets more work and the show loses more viewers. (laughs) I could see that coming and I was like, can I get through that without my voice going, no, no, I can't. (laughs) Luckily, the wave carries me to the shore and when I get out, I can't see out of my right eye because my face is swollen up. So I go to hospital and spend five hours in x-ray. So now I'm back, my face is back to normal, but let this be a lesson to you. If you are ever in California and attempted to catch a big wave, then do it. You too will have a near-death tale to impress your mates with. Cheers. And as we know from his interview, he actually recovered from that injury at the house of Jazz Rignall. Who'd left the British journalism scene and moved over to California to work for the big games industry. You ever had a near-death experience in water? What, I mean, other than all the times I was in the bath as a kid and thought there might be a shark there? Because you go into the water, sharks are in the water, therefore there will be sharks in the bathtub. Uh, well, apart from those ones, yeah. Uh, I actually had my own bodyboarding or boogie boarding, however you want to refer to it, uh, story. Not quite near death, but fairly terrifying. Mm. Uh, it was one of, I think, the last family holidays we 
had, because my parents were self-employed, we didn't get a lot of family holidays because if they weren't working, the business wasn't running. It was one of those deals. But we went away for a week and change in a static caravan down in Devon near Ilfracombe and Woolacombe, which is still one of my favourite areas of, of that part of Devon because it's some beautiful beaches, some lovely towns, some amazing fudge mm. and some fucking superb Cornish pasties. Like, like just some of the absolute top ones I've ever had. And what would happen actually is I think my dad took us down there and then my mum would come down. She would drive down from where we lived in Gloucestershire and join us in the evenings and on the Sunday. So it was kind of a, almost a family holiday. I went down the beach and from the holiday park we were staying in, you could rent a wetsuit and a bodyboard for the duration of your time there. And I actually ended up buying my own bodyboard. I didn't get my own wetsuit, but I did get my own bodyboard. And I wasn't great, but I was having a lot of fun because it's quite easy. to It's easy to pick up, difficult to master. I wasn't kind of like hanging inside the waves. The waves weren't that big, but I was learning to ride them in. And then on one wave in, as the wave was subsiding and the beach was coming up and I'd kind of travelled down a bit, so I was a bit further down the beach from where I'd started, up out of the water comes this long kind of plastic spike. Oh my God. It was like a long strip of um, right-angled plastic that had clearly come off a shipping container from somewhere or kind of a pallet container or something like that and probably fallen off a ship at sea or something like that. But it had come in with the tide and it had wedged itself in the sand, pointing skywards. And as I came in, and I was kind of quite far forward on the board, and my head was over the side, it came up the side of my face. <sighs> it lacerated the side of my face open. I'm amazed I didn't scar. No. But I, did, I did bleed. I didn't need stitches. It wasn't that deep. But let me tell you something. Cut in the face and salt water. <sighs> no thanks. Thankfully, my dad, being the well-prepared man that he is, had TCP to hand. I don't know why, but he did. <laughs> and I was quickly disinfected. It stopped bleeding fairly quickly. And I was actually out and bodyboarding like an hour or so again later in the afternoon. But it was quite scary because there was that split second as the water was subsiding and I saw this thing coming towards my face. Yeah. It wasn't quite life flashing before my eyes because I was a teenager. There wasn't that much to flash, really, so to speak. But, um, but yeah, that was quite a terrifying moment. How about you? So I, um, well, I mean, my, my story uh, very much pales in comparison to yours, but I, uh, so I, I very much enjoy whitewater rafting and um, I'd done it in Canada and really enjoyed it in Canada. And like the closest I ever came to coming out of the boat there is we hit this really rough patch. And like, if you haven't been whitewater rafting before, you have your foot like hooked into something like this is all like little like shape that you can like hook your foot into so that if you mm -hmm. do fall, you are effectively still within because your foot just catches on this and you can't fall out. Very, it's ingenious, really. And I, I basically, I went in and I came back out and it was a proper like <gasps> moment of just like, crikey, that was scary. Also very, very fun. When I did it in Peru, on the other hand, we basically finished the, the whitewater rafting that we were doing and we were now into like a, a clearer piece of water. And the guy that we were with was just like, if you want to, now's the time to jump in and you'll quite quickly catch up with the boat and you can get back in. And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds like a brilliant idea. So I just, you know, followed my arms in and I just dunked, threw myself back and I, and I went into the water. What I didn't realize was going to happen though is at the point I went in, the raft hit a rock and that means that it spun round, which means that it hit me and I went underneath the raft. 
Oh, mate. And because it hit a rock, that means I was then between the raft and the rock. And I was stuck. And like, there was a brief moment where I was like, oh dear, I am, I am stuck underneath a raft. And eventually the, it moved. It was like, I, I feel like eventually it was a very, very quick moment. It felt like forever. And I just felt myself just bumping between this rock and the raft until I ended up out the back of the raft with like a, you know, pulling myself out of the water with, oh my God. And I swam back and my wife was like, how did you end up there when you very much went out of the water there? And I was like, and I was like, I'll tell you later. But yeah, I, it was a genuinely terrifying moment of being underneath that rough between that and a rock. I was literally between a rock and a hard place. Also applauding you for the very smart decision to go, I'll tell you later. <laughs> that is how to really kill a day. Yeah. Is to go, I just nearly drowned. <laughs> Ooh, ooh, that was a bit spicy. Uh, no, I actually, I, I'll be honest, I think yours was scarier. Oh, yeah? Realistically, the worst I was probably going to get from this plastic shard of shit <laughs> was cuts. Or, you know, I might have lost an eye. Mm. Well, yeah, still terrifying. You could have drowned. I uh, know, it was, yeah. And like it was, it, as I said, it was like, I, I was underneath for seconds, but it felt like a long old time. So we both had our own near-death experiences with water, and I'm sure... As the rest of Games Master progresses, we'll have chance to talk about other near-death experiences because I've got at least three. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, has Dominic got any favourite games that we want to touch on before we get into the episode? Oh yeah, the top five has returned. And I think actually, I I, sh I could go back and check, but I've, the magazines are downstairs and I can't be bothered. But I think at least one of these has been in this before, which given the time span we're talking about, is kind of impressive. Can I, can I make a quick guess as to what's in this top five? Go on then. Only based on a review that we had. Is Smash Tennis in this? No. Oh man, I was, I'd have put money on that because as I said, because it was featured in episode one. Okay, fair enough. Well, number five, we've got TIE Fighter. Oh, the Star Wars game. Yeah, the sequel to X-Wing, I feel, improves on the original by letting you play the bad guys. A classic dichotomy of Cartesian principles with enhanced graphics, blah, blah, blah. That's literally what he wrote, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> Number four, Theme Park. Nice. It's Godsim with Humatastic. Number three, Dune. Our Dom is very much a PC gamer. Well, this one's on the Mega CD. Oh, it's the Mega CD one. Yeah. He describes it as spice mining, harken and killingly tastic. Number two, Super Bomberman 2 for the SNES. Yep, very nice. I mean, that's completely put to rest my idea that he's a PC gamer. And he describes that as bomb blowing tastic. And number one? On the Mega Drive, it's Micro Machines. Very nice. I mean, that's an age-old game at this point, but it's lovely to see it's still there. Well, you say it's an age-old game, and this actually comes up a bit later in the episode, but the NES and the original version was released in 1991, but the Mega Drive version didn't appear until 93-94. Was it that late? Because we had it featured in, I think it might have been reviewed in... Series 2? Feels like that's when it first cropped up in our timeline. Well, it's on the consultation zone this week, so we'll get to... I think I've got the publication date, so we'll get to that when we get to that. Uh, excellent, cool. But he describes that as mini-vehicle-tastic. <laughs> Very nice. We've just arrived at Games Master Station. We've purchased a super saver return to Fun City, and our return light commences at an off-peak time. The buffet car is open, serving light snacks and refreshments, including our first challenge, set by the Games Master. There is something so wonderfully... Uh, funny and and humorous and just and just wonderful about Dominic Diamond's dry delivery 
talking about a super safer return to Fun City. Well, it is usable at an off-peak time and the buffet car is open, serving light snacks and refreshments and challenges. But MVPs of this episode immediately... (laughs) It's my favourites. It's it's the minions from Phantasm. And I know they're not the minions from Phantasm, but I keep seeing them and I keep waiting for a silver sphere to fly across the screen. But these dudes are stood either side of Dominic Diamond doing the fucking locomotion. <laughs> and it is hilarious because they're in sync. Yeah, it's so good. And like that coupled with Dominic's delivery and dialogue, it's just tremendous, man. As we covered on the interview, Dominic says he's not a huge fan of this series. I got to disagree with him. Yeah, I, I, don't mind I it. respectfully, respectfully disagree with him, and respect. I mean, like everyone, everyone is their own worst critic. You know, I'm sure there are some people that say X or Y bits of under consultation are our best bits, and I would go no. But but no, this is this is golden delivery and just so funny. Well, let's get into our first challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? My first challenge is on the 3DO Shoot'em-Up Nova Score. Players have 60 seconds to score as many points as possible as they fly across the inhospitable terrain of an alien world. Keep an eye out for the power-up, which appears during the first part of the challenge, allowing contestants to inflict some serious damage on the alien horde. Well, blow me down. If getting one 3DO challenge wasn't enough last week, we've got two 3DO challenges now, this time playing Nova Storm. I was absolutely shocked that we got this. I mean, it's not the most exciting 3DO game, but they're really, they're pushing the 3DO on this show. They've clearly chosen the 3DO side of the Jaguar 3DO war. In fairness, that's not a particularly difficult side to take, or it's a difficult side to choose. On one side... You've got some decent games, some FMV games, and arguably at the time, the finest port of Street Fighter 2 available. And then you've got Where Did You Learn to Fly? Where did you learn to fly? Oh, I was about to say, or you've got AVP and Friends. That is a Garfield and Friends ripoff that I would love to see. (laughs) This is an on-rail shooter, which we discover as soon as the challenge actually starts. It was developed by Psygnosis in 1994, and came out through a number of different platforms, including the FM Towns slash Marty systems in Japan. Huh, well, there's some names that have not been mentioned on this podcast before. I just wanted to mention them purely because I saw that, and I was like, cool. Yeah. On that system, the game was called Scavenger 4, which is the name of the actual squadron that you're part of in the game. It takes place in the distant future. Mm -hmm. Humans have left the Earth in several huge arcs containing Earth's ecosystem in search of a new paradise. They have become complacent. Everything is controlled by artificial intelligence, while the human race sleeps and dreams of its new home. The computer systems evolve, however, and prophesize of a conquest of silicon again. Hang on, have they just, like, (laughs) stolen... They've stolen the plot to Battlestar Galactica, partly. Yeah. And then Wally has stolen the plot of that. Because huge arcs carrying the human population who've become lazy and complacent. That's Wally. <laughs> I was going to say, you think like the team behind Wally were just like, lads, I don't know if you remember this, but there's this game back in 94 called Scavenger 4. If you've ever played it, you might know it as Nova Storm. But anyway, the gameplay is similar to many other FMV based games of the time. The player takes control of the Scavenger 4 spacecraft over four different environments. Each level ends with a boss fight, which the player must complete to proceed. It's your standard shoot 'em up but just 
in a 3D pre-rendered environment. It came out for the 3DO, obviously, as we see here. It also came out for the Sega CD. Arguably, one of the best versions was the PlayStation version, which came on two discs and was the only game to go full screen with mm. its video. Oh, right. Yeah, because like you see here on this one, it's basically got a massive border around it that's got like your score on it and everything. So that's like the PlayStation one is like a, a full screen version. Yeah, so they, they kind of had a HUD overlaid, whereas this, the HUD is a surround. Yeah. But anyway, players have 60 seconds to score as many points as possible. And don't forget to grab that power up at the start of the challenge. It could be a difference maker, Luke. So please welcome for challenge number one, James Martin and Chris Cole. Chris, we'll start with you. Um, what's, what's been your hairiest game-playing moment? Um, well, it's probably when the power went off when I was like a centimetre away from completing Zelda. The whole power yeah. went down. Where about do you live? In Stoke. Is it interesting in Stoke? Is it? No, it's pretty boring, really. So a power cut wouldn't have made any much difference, really? No. Um, James, what about your hairiest game-playing experience? Oh, I fainted once. Fenton, where about you when you Fenton? Uh, around Chris's house. So basically the message is if you want to have a pleasant game playing experience, don't go to Chris's. I think. Yeah. I'm amazed you're still friends. Okay, so... <laughs> Chris, in a New York Yankees jersey that is about 10 sizes too big for him. As was the style at the time, <laughs> because we've had it before. Yeah, we have, man. Which was the style at the time? No! This is an onion on your belt of 1994. But, Dom gets straight down to business and he wants to know what Chris's hairiest game-playing moment has been. And Chris says it was when the power went off when he was centimetres away from completing Zelda. I'm not sure how centimetres away works when it comes to video games, but I think he means, like, close to the final boss battle. That's what I was thinking. Either, and it depends on what Zelda he's playing as well, like if he's talking about the original, maybe it's him walking towards the Triforce. Maybe if it's um, Link to the Past, it's beating Ganon. Who knows what really that centimeter is? Like I like to think of it as literally he was walking towards that Triforce at the end of the NES version of Legend of Zelda, and that's when his power cut off. I thought it was Link to the Past because of the time span we're talking about. But that's what I feel as well. Either way, at least he's got a battery pack save. As long as he had saved it recently. I mean, oh, that could still be a good two, oh. three hours worth of lost play. Yeah, I mean, you'd We've hope all done it. You'd hope that he'd saved it. Yeah. I like the fact that James and Chris are friends, though I do get the feeling that going on this show was Chris's idea more than it was James, because James is a bit more monosyllabic with his answers. And when he turns to James and asks him for his hairy moments, his hairy moment was fainting while playing a game and not only that, it happened at Chris's house. That is not a place to be going to play games. Like, did he did he live in the house from Poltergeist or something? Or was he, was it was it like was it made of remaining timbers from the Amityville house? Also, like credit to Dom here as well because I'm maybe he was expecting a funny answer, but not to be like, no, I nearly faint. I, I fainted at someone's house. Like, oh, now I've got to make a joke out of this. Oh, that's quite a serious thing, actually. I do like the line he goes with, which is, well, this means if you want to have a pleasant game-playing experience, don't go to Chris's house. Opening across the country this week, the film that's been smashing records in America all summer, The Lion King. Animators who worked on the film have been keeping busy collaborating with top software company VIE on a game version. With levels based directly on scenes from the film, this will be a very faithful conversion, if disgustingly cute and icky. And 
our first news item is a movie we're going to hear a lot about in the coming weeks because we're going to have it as a box office number one. I'm sure there'll be songs that we will make reference to in the charts and games because we've got a challenge of it in episode seven. The Lion King is on its way to the UK after smashing all sorts of US records. Given how big this film was, both in America and here, I took the sneaky look ahead at the number one films and I did go, really? Only three weeks? Yeah, I was surprised at that as well. Then again, I was also surprised that we only had one week of Speed, which is our next number one, and one week of Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump? I mean, that thing made a fortune, but it was only number one here for a week. We're a fickle bunch. I mean, I'm still remembering Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare going to number one, and also when we got to talk about Hellraiser 3, (laughs) Hell on Earth. Which, don't get me wrong, is probably my favourite Hellraiser movie next to the original because it's so weird. But also, how did that get to number one in the UK? Because we weren't going to see Forrest Gump. Clearly. (laughs) But given that we are going to get to talk about this film and game for a literal arse age over the next month or so, are you wanting to move on to the next article fairly quickly? Yeah, I'd say we move on now. Only because I know we get it as a challenge in episode seven. So we got it as a challenge there and we've got the film as well. So we could probably spread this out over a couple of weeks. The only thing I will say, Dom does refer to Virgin Interactive Entertainment as VIE, which I found an interesting choice. That is actually, isn't it? Because like I, I knew that he meant Virgin Interactive Entertainment, but it's not what I would ever call them. I'm wondering if it's just in the copy he had, it had been abbreviated to VIE and he... He read what was on the page, which is fair enough. Appearing in a shop near you now, the first affordable virtual reality headset, Cybermax. If you've got a PC, you can ride this virtual ghost train in the comfort of your own home. Unfortunately, though, it can't be used with existing games like Doom, but big companies will be making future releases compatible with this 500 quid piece of tragically unhip headgear. Our second news item, though, is a slightly more interesting one because this is... We have had our 2D era. We are now like in our sort of polygonal era. We've had our FMV stuff. We are into our digitized actor stuff. And now we're into the big scary world of virtual reality and VR. And there are now VR headsets that are, quote, affordable, even though this one is 500 quid. I don't know. When you look at the cost of a decent setup for a VR headset now, things haven't changed that much. VR was the hot topic. It was the big daddy button because people had seen Lawnmower Man, they'd seen some of that cyber nookie, and they were like, Yes, sir, daddy, I want some cyber nookie that looks like that. Spoilers, it never looked like that. Yeah, I mean, the thing that Dom says in this news item here is just like the most paramount thing about VR at this time, where he says, You cannot play Doom with this, but you can do this sort of stuff over here. Because when, if, like, if you're not in the industry and you are just someone who is reading a magazine or watching this show and you see like a VR headset, your first thought is going to be, can I play a first person shooter on it? Can I play Doom on it? I find it odd that he says that this is the first affordable headset because technically this wasn't the first headset from this company because this Cybermax with two X's mm-hmm. was produced by Victormax. Yeah, and it didn't really work on the, the Mega Drive either, um, or, or the SNES. And I have found one of these Cybermaxes because like, I was curious you know, how much these would probably go for now. So I looked on eBay. You can still get one for about $500. So 
they haven't actually changed much in the price that you pay for them. No, inflation has not touched these at all. I was actually looking up some details on its predecessor, the Stuntmaster, because they kind of brought it to the market ahead of what Sega were hoping to do with the Sega VR. What blew my mind is the resolution of the screens in the original Stuntmaster. So you know, obviously, you've got horizontal and vertical resolutions. Each screen had a resolution of 280 by 86. That's, that's um, I mean, it's a very small widescreen. And basically meant that because of how close to your eyes it was, it was blurry as shit. I mean, that's, that's what I was just about to ask them because I just thought, I was like, okay, screens, maybe this is like various different screens that are within your viewfinder that are going to make up your full picture. But no, that is literally just the one screen. That's <laughs> just the one image you're getting. So that's going to be very bad. That would be like in the pre-YouTube days when you would find like wrestling clips on forums and stuff of like botches that you would never see on TV anymore. And they would be like one by one pixel. Real media. Exactly. Yeah, real media stuff. Exactly. There was also another thing that really screwed with the Stuntmaster which it was designed to tie in with the Mega Drive and it had special connectors that interacted with the video connectors at the back of the Mega Drive. And then Sega released the Model 2. <laughs> but basically, the Stuntmaster released, it went down like a wet fart and the PC version they were developing was abandoned. And that's when they moved on to the Cybermax. Yeah, with its two X's, importantly. Now, he says it's going to be in the shops now, but it didn't actually come out until November or later, so this was a little bit premature. And I'll be honest, I can't find much evidence that it actually came out over here. I don't think it reached our shores. I think that's probably for the best. Yeah, I mean, from what I can gather, like I was reading a couple of articles about it. it like Essentially, what killed it was um, the, the virtual eyeglasses were released around the same time, and they were better, and they cost less. So... Basically, by 96, they were starting, like really dropping the price of the Cybermax. And then I've, I found this article from EGM issue number 85 from August 1996. that says one of the first companies to create a video game system compatible headset has reportedly decided to exit the business. The company, Victormax, built the Cybermax head mounted display. An EGM call to the company was not returned. But a report from our online Nuke site quoted company president Richard Curry as saying the HMD market's potential has been very slow in developing. The report also states Victormax will shut down all current production of the Cybermax to focus on its online gaming venture, an auto-duel game based on Steve Jackson's board game. See, I found a few bits of financial information on, oh. um, on sales of the Cybermax. Oh, interesting. So financial statement showing sales of the Cybermax from 1994. So basically, it launched in November. So man, that's that's there for Thanksgiving. That's there for Black Friday. That's there for the Christmas rush. The revenue from the Cybermax in 1994 was $606,143. Okay. Each unit cost $699, which means in that Christmas rush, they sold 867 units. I mean, I'll be honest, it's more than I thought they'd sell. But they weren't going to give up because while they were facing competition from the virtual I.O., they started developing a version 2. Well, you've got to get ahead of the game, haven't you? You've got to make sure you're ready for the next iteration. But it comes at a price, specifically $200 more expensive. So now we're at $899. Oof, bloody hell. And that new revision was released less than a year after the original. It was August 95. 
and they sold even less of that because they had sales revenue on that one of $670,729, which I don't have a figure for, but it's less than 867 units sold. Hey, look, it's Swindon on a summer's day. No, it's not. It's actually Dino Island, the latest motion theatre ride that's opened in America. The game uses the same graphic techniques as Jurassic Park, and this looks set to be just as successful as that film without being as overrated. And it's not quite our last news item, but it's basically our last full news item, because the, the last one is basically just about the Games Master Network, is about the iWorks reactor and this new show that they've got on called Dino Island which is not Swindon on a summer's day and it is uh, it's a cool looking thing yeah uh, unlike Swindon on a summer's day because I've been to Swindon on a summer's day this looks way nicer and it doesn't have a stupid fucking cluster of roundabouts in the middle of it the one thing I would say about this though is that Dom is very harsh about Jurassic Park well, you mean saying that it uses the same tech as Jurassic Park, so it will look just as good, but without being as overrated? I mean, yes, that is very harsh. Man, we, we do have a special kind of grumpy Dom here, don't we? Don't we just, yeah. This is a Dom that's just going to hate anything that's popular. So this company, iWorks, it's interestingly co-founded by Don iWorks, who was the son of legendary Disney animator Ub iWorks. And like the company is still running today. They're still doing 4D and 5D rides. They've done stuff for uh, Marvin the Martian, like, and, like movie tie-ins as well. So they've done Marvin the Martian, Speed Racer, Green Lantern, the Yogi Bear movie, Pacific Rim. They did a 4D Pacific Rim ride, which I would love to go on. And San Andreas, which also sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. I found this article from the October 97 edition of Wired talking about the reactor. And it said the iWorks reactor touring motion theater doesn't look that impressive from the exterior, just two shiny black trailers. Inside, however, lie some of the best rides you'll find outside of a theme park. And the reason why I wanted to mention this article is because it kind of ties into what Dom said in his piece, which is what the guy writes here. Some of the computer generated dinosaurs are too darn cute and the trees look a bit blocky, but that's like whining that Mr. Toad's Wild Ride is mostly painted plywood. Dino Island kicks Jurassic Park the ride's scaly butt. Even they're pitting the two against each other. Now, I've only seen clips of Dino Island, but I have been on the Jurassic Park ride a number of times. I don't know that it does. Even, even, I, I, I haven't been on the Jurassic World refit, and I hope to at some point go on the Jurassic World refit. But even the original, when the dinosaurs were looking a bit tired... It was still really quite cool. So awesome. We actually get, uh, and I only know this because I was watching an episode at random, we get a Games Master feature on the Jurassic Park ride, I think, when it opens. Like, with Dominic Diamond going on the ride. And from memory, it is quite funny. Yeah, do do the dinosaurs get their revenge for disparaging (laughs) the film? (laughs) I mean, I found the same review that uh, you did, which mentioned Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, which I just loved because I was thinking more rats. When I hear Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, I love the closing paragraph of this review. Hands down, the best thing about the reactor is the attendance. When a well-scrubbed kid in a polo shirt throws a switch to jostle me wall-eyed, I feel much safer than when I trust the same task to a toothless, drunken carny running the zipper. Savage. Finally, the Games Master Network launched last week has taken off like a rocket, with people called things like Jim the Highlander phoning up. We'll give you the logon number at the end of the show. Yeah, and like we said, the uh, Games Master Network gets another little bonus feature here. Nothing too much to add to it when we had last time, other than Jim the Highlander has joined. You know, Jim. Jim. <laughs> Jim, if you're listening, 
Get in touch. Does a giant creature lurk below these peaceful waters? No, of course it doesn't. But with the lack of a decent football team, it's nice that we Scots have got something Americans will believe in. And it gives me the chance to meet yet more attractive birds. Through sonar, we've been able to locate what we believe to be Nessie's lair. But there was a new twist. She appeared to have eggs. Oh yeah, Jimmy Hell. The rescue operation will be conducted using advanced submersibles. These will be operated by teams of six volunteer scientists. The team will consist of a commander who leads the team and navigates, a pilot who actually maneuvers the vehicle through the lock, two robotic arm operators who will pick up the eggs and other objects, and two periscope operators who will have a 360 degree view of the lock. And all of them fancied me. Astute of you will have guessed, this isn't the real Loch Ness. It's a virtual Loch Ness, as presented in the latest interactive ride it just opened in the States. The ride takes place in a real-time 3D environment with eight separate submersibles fighting for the eggs and the chance to make their own Loch Ness omelette. Oh, no, come on. Shoot back him. However, I fancied the crew more than our chances. And with her unerring instinct for disaster, my pilot aimed straight for a whirlpool. Yes, Nessie. Yes, there was Nessie and her eggs. It was time for my crew to prove they weren't just giggly Americans. But as we went for the egg, another team scuppered us. Finally, though, the coast was clear. It was now or never. Do or die. But then it was all over. My team was pants. We will get to the Nova Storm factory in a minute, but we've got another feature to go through yet. And this is proper, like, the mystery science theater stuff that we were talking about with Dom. We've been kind of, like, mentioning that this show is going to be doing a lot of. But this is Dom doing a ride and then basically reporting on that ride by taking the piss out of that ride and then just putting it into this show. This is pure, like, magazine format stuff. Yeah, it's like Gloria Honeyford on holiday, but way more Scottish and way more sarcastic. Because Dom says the great thing about the Loch Ness Monster is it's something that Americans will believe in and it allows him to meet more attractive birds. <laughs> the line that proper made me laugh with this is you've got like the American voiceover being like, you will have four navigators and this and this and this. And Dom just goes, and all of them fancied me. I see my favourite line was when they showed the whole mission briefing thing, the, the, the kind of female submarine captain on the screen. And, and she's like, and we found Nessie. And she's laid eggs. And Dom's response is, oh, yeah, Jimmy Hill. <laughs> An expression I hadn't thought about in a solid 25 years. That's so good. Is that what, what did you have that as, as a child for, like, telling a fib? Oh, a chinny. Uh, yeah, we had chinny. And then when I went to university, my friend told me that his at school was beard. Oh, beard on. Weirdly, beard seems familiar, but I do remember more chinny or Jimmy Hill. Yeah, Chinny was what I was asking. Oh, yeah, Chinny. And then, yeah, when I was at university, we would always go like, oh, beard? If you, if you knew someone was telling a massive lie. Yeah, that rings a bell. I don't know where from, because, like, obviously I, well, I only lasted a year at university anyway, but obviously our education is slightly spaced out, but I'm sure I heard it somewhere. But I did enjoy this feature. I got, I mean, I really enjoyed this news uh, whole section here, but this whole, this feature bit here was 
it's very silly and it's got like it's not the thing that i'm interested in when i tune in to watch games master but i cannot deny that it didn't make me laugh it is a lot of fun to watch and also how comically inept the people playing the game with dom are because the whole idea of it as you've heard is like you've got different teams all of which have like six people inside and they're all racing to find nessie and get some eggs to make an omelette one would presume and we see dom's team playing and they spend most of their time crashing into shit a lot to the point where dom fancies the crew more than their chances <laughs> yeah there's a bit at the end because basically they don't do that well and they don't get any of the eggs whatsoever. And because it's an automated video, the woman just comes up and goes, you all did a really good job. And you get Dom go, what? We didn't even get a single egg. But it's really fascinating to see this because obviously we've now had two features on motion rides. Uh, we've just had the one on Dino Island. And then the other week we had the one which is by the same company and team and graphics artists that did the title sequence for season four. But now we've got this, and this is a very different technological beast because this is an interactive game. This is actually an early precursor to what they're now doing in um, the Star Wars Disney thing with the Fly the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, it's crazy, man. I found a, um, a Baltimore Sun article about this, which I think is basically sort of about its opening. So this appears at an aquatic museum called Nauticus, which is in Virginia. And there's kind of like this war as well, because this open, Virginia already has a, um, a, like a maritime museum and sort of like and an aquarium. But the guy who runs it um, said that, uh, hey, you've got the critters, we've got the technology. And the idea behind this place is that this is like a technology place to go to, to learn about the sea and learn about this, that and the other. They've even got their own comic book hero character called Captain Nauticus, leader of a marine posse called the Ocean Force, who have been exiled from their home of Aquamar and now live in Nauticus. They seek to apprehend the notorious criminal Fathom, a villain who uses the power of the ocean for his own selfish entertainment. Man, they were really desperate, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, but yeah, like it's a, this is a, this huge museum that uses a lot of CD-ROM technology. And the only thing I could really find about this is that it costs you an extra $2.50 to go into this theater and play this game. And to be honest, for $2.50, that seems like a pretty, that's a pretty sweet bargain. Nowadays, certainly. Back then, I imagine people might go a bit of, hmm, because it only ran for six minutes. It was a yeah. very, very short adventure. But it was created by iWorks. And essentially, this was repurposing one of their high-end flight simulators. It was part of a series called Virtual Adventures. And it didn't take long for it to be copied because Disney actually came out with their own version shortly afterwards called Disney Quest, mm -hmm. which, which was okay. essentially doing the same sort of thing. And I'm sure if I had a look around, then Defunctland or similar will have done a, will have done a, a video on this. I'm pretty sure that iWorks name is going to come up a lot, particularly if Series 4 is going to do a lot more features on these sort of motion ride things. But chances are they're probably done by iWorks. But at that point in time, because of the way you had different pods competing for the same story goal, it was the largest number of people who'd been networked together in a VR entertainment application. There were some others that only supported up to 16, but by supporting, I think, up to eight pods, depending on the installation, that's 48 people. Yeah. That's a hell of a leap. And it was all in 3D and it all had bespoke controls. That's some really, really impressive technology for 1994. That would be huge now. 
but like 94, that's so impressive. And the news here is that Simon Byron's riding shotgun with me for this one. What can you recommend our players to do in this? 15 seconds in, there should be a, a power-up appearing, which uh, if he can collect some um, boosted firepower, so it's worth going for. Well, let's get back to the challenge, shall we? After that massive detour that we've taken from there, we've still got that Nova Storm challenge. Simon Bryan is riding shotgun. Um, and he again talks about the power-up, which, I mean... He's not messing around when talking about how that power-up is going to save your score here. James is up first, and he gets 5,800 points before the power-up. He gets that power-up, and he jumps up to like over 218,000. If you don't get that power-up, you're not winning this challenge. And he is shooting with reckless abandon, blasting all and sundry, and they cut to him occasionally. And I feel a little bad for saying it, but he does have the cold, ruthless, calculating stare of a serial killer when he's playing this game. He looks like he is trying to kill things with his eyes. And it kind of works. He nets himself a grand total of 376,900 points. There's not much point talking about the actual challenge itself because it's a shooter on rails. And it's not like you encounter any particular waves of enemies. You just fly down a canyon and you shoot shit and that's it. It's not the most inspiring challenge like to like to watch. It's not. And I think that shows in the commentary because James makes way for Chris. Chris is reminded of the score he has to beat. Don wishes him the best of luck and the challenge starts. And Don points out it's not terribly exciting and asks Simon if he's got any jokes. And Simon doesn't have any jokes. I mean, way to let the team down. Yeah, so then Dom starts to tell one. Well, I've got one. These three blokes walk into uh, a bar and, uh, oh no, but there's some action on screen, so we'll never know the outcome of that. What I like about Dom on commentary in Series 4 is that he rectifies what a lot of people didn't like about Dexter's commentary in Series 3. Like, And, I'm, and what I mean by that is I'm going by the feedback that we've had for the show, which, you know, people are really you know, so annoyed at them, and I was one of them, with his repeat of, like, leaping like a lizard and things like that. But I gave Dexter the benefit of the doubt because... I mean, you've got to commentate three times on the same thing. And usually they take the same journey, right? And Dominic has got the same thing here. But what he does is he flips it around. So the first time you do the challenge and you watch it, Dom just commentates on it like normal. When he gets to the second time of it, he's like, right, well, now it's just the time to tell jokes. Because what you are watching at home is basically the exact same challenge. So I've just got to try and freshen this up as opposed to trying to provide straight commentary again. And doing things like this, where he's like, do you know any jokes? Oh, yeah, it's about three blokes walking to a bar. Oh, actually, no, the challenge just started. We need to talk about this now. Makes the challenge a lot more interesting. Although, as we get into this second challenge, and as we established earlier this episode, Jazz Rignall is no longer on Games Master. He's no longer in the country. He's moved to LA. He will no longer be forced to review repetitive, cutesy platform games on Games Master. But that means... His crown of most miserable person on Games Master is unclaimed. And I think Simon is making a run for it. Because when Chris gets the power up, Dom says, oh, I think he's in a chance with beating James's score. And Simon's like, no, don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it, and it, because he looks like mini Dom, there's like this sort of like yin and yang to their two things of both being like, but Dom's just a slightly happier side of miserable. Yeah, and it just made me go back to the other 3DO challenge where Dom's like, oh, first 3DO challenge. This is quite exciting, isn't it? And it's Simon again. He's just like, no, no, <laughs> no, not really bothered. But I'll be honest, whether it's actually how he feels or whether he's just deadpanning for camera, it bloody works because it makes me laugh. Yeah, it's really, but really good. This challenge does get exciting in the last 10 seconds because they are 
very close. With five seconds, it's even closer. And it is literally the last two shots fired as the clock hits zero that pushes him over the score to 385,510 points. And boom, Chris is the winner. Simon is wrong, but Chris is the winner. I honestly thought that um, James was going to have this because Chris, like at the same point where Vivek when you get the power up, Chris was well behind James, well behind him in the score. I was like, James has easily got this in the bag, but you're right. It is like right down to the wire, which is, I, I think, the, the most exciting part of the challenge. This does mean that Chris has lifted the curse. This house is clean. <laughs> James, that was very, very close there. Where did you lose those crucial th- couple of thousand points? At the beginning. Yeah, to, what, what, t- took you a while to get your aim, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Chris, I think we've lifted the curse of Chris. No one fainted, no one was sick, no lights went out, and you won. Uh, did, were you a bit scared at all, or did you know you were going to win all the time? No, I was quite surprised, really, because I had a bad beginning, and it sort of came together at the end, and finally I beat him. And everybody's all smile. But it won't be for long because he's got a brand new cursed artifact to bring across the threshold. He is the winner of the Golden Games Master joystick. Yeah, he said that he lost crucial points at the start. I don't think that's true. I just think he just was the better player in the end. Doom 2 on the PC has an 18 certificate, so we can only show you the cute bits. Sorry, but rules are rules. Hi, my name's Adrian, and I have a profession to make. I'm a Doomaholic. I've been playing it 12 hours a day, but recently I've curbed my habit by playing Doom 2. It's got guns in it. It's very bloody, it's very violent, and it's very fast-paced. There are adventure elements, and there are loads of weapons to pick up, and there are loads of things you do have to figure out. But other than that, you pretty much shoot everything and find your way out of the level. It's excellent, but it's not really a sequel. What makes Doom and Doom 2 so exciting for the game player is the involvement of it all. The graphics are stupendous. They absolutely convince you that you're in an alien landscape. In a way, Doom 2 is really just a set of data disks for Doom 1. There's hardly anything different. You get a new gun and there's a bunch of new monsters. But at the end of the day, you're just getting a whole load of new levels for Doom. And that's no bad thing. Holy hell. Hell being the operative word there. Big old game to kick us off here. It's going to be released this week. Doom 2 on PC. Oh man, like it's Tim Tucker that says this is basically just data discs for Doom 1 because it's it's the same game just with more guns, more levels and more monsters. But man, I absolutely freaking love Doom 2. It is a 50 quid level pack and I don't say that to be negative, although I guess I kind of am being negative, but it is a 50 quid level pack. But what levels i didn't get to play much of doom 1 or doom 2 at the time i think i may played more of doom 1 because my friend had it but when i did get to play both of them as part of the doom conversion that was released for the playstation that that was oh oh it's a great conversion as well that play that, that final doom collection is a really really smart conversion oh that was a separate one as well wasn't it oh i thought that's what you, when you were talking about no no okay so there were technically two versions of doom for the ps1 there was playstation doom which was a conversion of the ultimate doom and doom 2 mm-hmm. and that came out in 95 and in fact used the same version of the doom engine that was used in the atari jaguar port a great port of the game Yeah, but I mean, that is kind of picking the carcass clean at that point. And then the same team in 1996 released Final Doom. So there were two separate releases. 
and I'm fairly confident I did own both of them. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I had Final Doom. I mean, I, 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 I will get Doom on anything. If I, anything I can get my hands on because I absolutely adore these games. And like, they're very praising of it here because, yeah, this game absolutely rocks. It's really, really good. Even when they're just like, I mean, like Adrian at the start was like, I've got a problem. I'm a Doomaholic, but I found a new cure. It's Doom 2. It's got guns in it. <laughs> I love that. that. That Again, people are on fire in this episode and... That was just a great. It's the kind of absolutely manic look he gives the he gives the camera, and that reaction there was like it's got guns in it, which is you know it's all about focusing on the blood and the guts and the gore and everything. I'm currently rewatching ER on um, all four. It's been one of my my wife's like lockdown um, projects, basically. So we've been watching ER from the start. Doom Two features quite heavily in one of the episodes it features in like an episode seven of series two which is a really great episode um uh, for george clooney but like they get a new pc installed so that they can like do all of their charts and everything like that and instead they just use it to play doom 2 got the computer fixed yeah linda farrell you smell like dope where have you been a patient oh. you hooked up to mount sinai yeah beating the crap out of them what are you doing I'm playing doom 2 how long does it take to play months i've done thoracotomies that were less bloody he just doesn't understand the educational value die bastard die come on we need a red key. Look up at the last hole. Use the rocket launcher. Look, Mount Sinai's shooting us. The cheaters, get him, get him. Do it. Need a bulletproof vest. Blast it with a BFG 9000. Oh, look, his guts are all over the place. Quiet, you guys. This is County General. Go ahead. And they've got they've got like multiple scenes of them like crowding around the computer and playing Doom 2. It's very hokey dialogue of someone who's not played the game and just like oh and have a character say shoot them with the bfg 9000 no you've got the chain gun it's like it's not the most written thing but i did say to my wife and i was like oh i'm quite looking forward to doom 2 coming up in our podcast timeline so i can talk about this game i'm definitely wanting to go back and play some of the classic dooms and i believe they're all on the game pass now because you know microsoft but yeah even in the reviews they do point out that this is like it's kind of not really a sequel. It is just more the same. It is a level pack. It's a bunch of data discs. But they have to confess, because it's so well done, it's, it's not really a bad thing. And when I was looking at the information on this and just like, you know, refreshing my memory a bit on Doom 2, I'd forgotten that this was the first time I encountered a name that fascinated me for years to come, because a lot of the levels were designed by Sandy Peterson. But another person that played a very significant role was one american mcgee who is a name that i only really discovered i didn't know he worked on doom 2 but i i knew him through alice uh, the the pc series that he released which is like the the dark twisted version of, of um alice in wonderland and it was released as american mcgee's alice and i've spoken to american mcgee um previously because i tried to interview him for the book because they wanted to do a movie version of his alice series and i was trying to convince him to do it and he would not talk to me and the only reason he wouldn't is because he said I'm still trying to get this film made. And I've just worried that if I say something in a, like on record, that's going to damage my chances of doing that. I would love to see a film of American McGee's Alice. I would love to see a TV series. Netflix, Amazon, you're throwing money at everything else. Like, bloody crackle. I don't care. Just like get this made because it's a dark gothic fantasy. But Alice in Wonderland is already pretty messed up. The thing that always surprised me the most about American McGee is that is really his name and the name he was born with 
Yeah. Because his mother was essentially a hippie artist interior decorator. And apparently, at one point, she had apparently considered naming him, I think it was Nodnarb, which is Brandon backwards. I'm not sure why. <laughs> That's kind of weird. But man, I love his style. I, lo I love his stuff. And um, yeah, so it's always really nice to see his name associated with my gaming experiences from way before American McGee's Alice or Return to Madness. And actually, like American McGee and Sandy Peterson were the two people who were instrumental in the big Easter egg of the game, which is John Romero's head impaled on a spike it was basically from a press photo that he'd done and they put that into the the final thing uh, into icon of sin um and you've basically got to damage it by three rockets in order to officially win the game and john romero discovered this when he was playtesting it thought it was funny so he recorded himself saying to win the game you must kill me john romero to win this game you must kill me john romero and that became like the the big Easter egg of the game. And when like, you know, the uh, reviewers here are talking about this being it's just data disks. The one thing that has lasted for Doom 2 is the level of secrets that are in this game. So much so that the final secret of Doom 2 wasn't discovered until only a handful of years ago. It was like 2018 that the final secret within Doom 2 was discovered. A... Uh, guy called Zero Master discovered it on level 15 and it had been previously assumed to be a bug because you could not 100% the level and it was just assumed that's a programming error because we found literally everything that was in there and I had to get this from the Doom wiki because it's very very specific it is normally impossible to register secret 4 as the secret sector in question sector 147 is located adjacent to the raised teleport pad and is only 16 units wide this setup completely prevents the player from touching this sector's floor as is required to trigger a secret. Upon crossing the sector's boundary, they are immediately raised onto a pad and teleported away. Therefore, the maximum secrets percentage one can ordinarily get on this map is 90%. However, as Zero Master discovered, if you lure a pain elemental towards you and have it spawn a lost soul while the door is trying to close on your head, you can reach it. Zero Master explained, in other words, a secret can only be triggered if Doomguy's center is within the secret area and he is on the same height as the secret sector. The second being impossible because Doomguy is always lifted up to the teleporter floor height when his center is either exactly or on the sector secret. This trick has something to do with the moving door and the pain elemental spawning a lost soul on top of you. This forces you down to the lowest floor the moving door is on, which puts you within the secret sector and on the same height, thus triggering the secret. Oh no, I've gone cross-eyed. And that itself sounds like a bug, but John Romero confirmed that was the only way to get to it. And he confirmed on Twitter, a secret teleporter is marked as a discoverable secret when you touch it, you never enter the sector. So you would never get inside the teleporter sector to trigger the secret. The only way to trigger it is to be pushed by an enemy onto it. That is why it took so frick like 24 years to discover the final secret of Doom 2. That's just mean. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I'll be honest, I kind of, I didn't zone out because you were talking. I just zoned out because of the level of detail required. My brain just started playing the Magic Roundabout theme. Oh, it's crazy, isn't it? Like, I was reading it then, I'm so, and I've read that so many times, and I still don't fully understand how the secret is acquired. I know I love Doom, and I definitely know you love Doom. And Luke, guess what? <laughs> What's that, Ash? An Atari Jaguar port of Doom 2 was announced in early 1995, but guess what? <laughs> it did not come out. 
nor did the 3DO version, in fairness, so we both lose. (laughs) Ghoul Patrol is the follow-up to the brilliant Zombies Ate My Neighbours, but is Mr Dodgy's sequel going to pay a visit? It's got a wonderful humour to it. It's basically very much in the line of the 50s B-movie horror film with um, all sorts of ghouls and goblins that you've got to track down. And uh, there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek drama to it. I like it a lot. It's a good involving game. If you remember Zombies Ain't My Neighbours, then you'll have a very good idea of what Ghoul Patrol is going to be like. It's maze action, you know, very gauntlet-inspired. Run around, save the hostages, shoot the ghosts, get out of the level. Basically, there's too much roaming around, collecting things for uh, my liking. This isn't really as good as the first game. It's a bit too complicated, and some of the levels are far too large. You get lost very easily. The extra power-ups and extra bonus items do add a little to the game. There's really not much here to recommend it over the original. Yeah, it's Ghoul Patrol is the less good Zombies Ate My Neighbours. Realistically, there is a very, very simple reason for that, isn't there? Yeah, it's because it's not meant to be a sequel to Zombies Ate My Neighbours. Not only was it not meant to be a sequel... It wasn't even developed by the same team as the original. They just licensed the engine. It was a small Malaysian studio called Motion Pixel. Because that's what it was designed to be. It was literally, they had got the engine to make their own game. And then the publishers behind Zombies Ate My Neighbours just slapped the two main characters from Zombies into the game. And like, so the people who created Zombies were just like, huh? What's going on here? Like uh, this interview with Mike Eberts that I found said, I never really understood that project. No one approached uh, Dean or I about making a sequel. When we first heard about the game, it was a unique product, not related to zombies at all. Dean and I were heads down working on Metal Warriors. Then one day, we find out that Zeke and Julia are in the game, and suddenly, changed it to a zombie sequel. So I've always been somewhat confused about that game. I always felt someone in management changed it to a sequel in the hope that it would sell better. I had no involvement in the product whatsoever. It's kind of like recasting someone in the film without telling them or something. It's quite a weird one. I've not played a huge amount of it, but the Switch collection is either due out or already out. I can't remember at this point, and also depending on when this episode gets released. I will reappraise it. Obviously, I'll play Zombies Ate My Neighbours first, but I'll give Ghoul Patrol another go. I mean, it's not a bad game. It's just kind of an unnecessary one. I've never played it, and the the reviews that they kind of give it here where they're basically like it's like zombies but the maps are too big and a bit too complex does kind of turn me off a little bit too but like you i'm i am going to get the ps4 release where it comes with zombies so i am going to give it a go but yeah i'm going into there with not lowered expectations but not as in like i'm not expecting to love it as much as i love uh the original it gets 70 percent here which isn't a terrible score no no i mean that's still within the threshold of worth a play and, you know, will I rebuy, you know, and I'll, I'll rebuy Zombies Ate My Neighbours. And if I get this as well, that's fine. It's like buying the Halloween box set and it's still got those two Rob Zombie films in it. They're there. Finally, how original a one-on-one beat-em-up. Except this time it's on 3DO, it's Way of the Warrior and it's a wee bit grungy. It uses large digitised actors instead of sprites. But it's not very fluid. It's actually quite difficult to control the characters. And there doesn't seem to be much in the way of realism involved in the fighting. It's a lot better looking than, say, Mortal Kombat 2 or Super Street Fighter. What Way of the Warrior really lacks is a strong, weighty feel. Each of the characters feels too light and airy. For a game to be really smart on something like the 3DO, it's going to have to have brilliant graphics, brilliant sound, and it's going to have to move really quickly. And I'm afraid Way of the Warrior just doesn't do that. The introduction we get to Way of the Warrior is... It's like a passing of the torch 
because previously these sorts of comments are just like, oh, look, it's another of this. We're saved for the mascot platformer. That's what Jazz Rignall would have said to us. And now we've got Dominic Diamond being annoyed that there's another 2D fighter on our hands. Well, we already know from the other week that, you know, he's not a fan of fighting games and some guy in the pub told him exactly, you know, what to think about people that like fighting games. It's Tim that's got the deadly line here where he basically says, this game is not good enough for the 3DO. Yeah, it's got to have brilliant graphics and sound and move really quickly. And Way of the Warrior just doesn't do it. So, I mean, one thing I do like about this game is its soundtrack, because it's soundtracked by White Zombies' Last Sexisto, which is a <clears throat> banging album. That is a fan attack. Like, that is pretty much the biggest thumbs up I can give this. The other big thumbs up I can give this game is that I very much appreciate the effort and camaraderie that went into making this, because this game was effectively made in someone's apartment without a green screen. They basically just had a tan sheet that they drilled into a wall, and that is what they used as their green screen. And it was such a small apartment that they had to have the door open to put the camera far enough away so they could capture all of the green screen to properly key it out, which means they were effectively filming it in their hallway. Because this was a quite early game for Naughty Dog, who went on to much bigger, better, and more controversial things as time went on. But you know what? That's enough news. That's enough features. That's enough reviews. Let's get on to our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? My next challenge is on Jimmy White's snooker on the Mega Drive. The contestant has to prove his superiority by pocketing the balls on a real snooker table before the Mega Drive clears its own computer version. The human player should have the advantage when it comes to obtaining shots, but be warned, the computer never misses. It's a snooker challenge with a twist. I'm actually quite excited about this one. This is a very exciting concept and a very exciting premise. And I don't think we've ever had anything like this before. Certainly not on Games Master. I'm pretty sure we'll get more like this later down the line. Feels like very series six and seven, this sort of challenge, maybe five or six. But yeah, we are getting Jimmy White, spoilers, the celebrity is Jimmy White, playing Jimmy White snooker against the Mega Drive. Now, man versus computer at this point has mostly been reserved for chess. And I think it was uh, someone, probably me making it up now on the spot, that said that snooker is chess of the ball world. (laughs) Do you know what? It started better in my head. And then just towards the end, I kind of went like crisp guy from the other week. Hot curry flavour because it's hot like my performance in a sharp taste. Oh, wait, no. Snooker is like chess with balls. There we go. Diamondism. Rightly <laughs> both in because it's very rarely that my own floundering makes me laugh, and that one did. <laughs> so this is man versus machine. This is kind of like how Terminator starts. This is this is where Skynet begins. But I do like Dom's introduction, where he observes that the last time this man was on the show, both of them had a lot more hair, but he's still pleased to welcome Jimmy White, the people's champion. If you smell. <laughs> <laughs> 
It is great to have Jimmy back. Now, Jimmy, tonight you're playing against the machine. How's that yep. going to be different than playing against, say, Stephen Hendry? Um, well, a little bit different. I'm going to try and um, beat the machine by time. I'm going to put maybe a red and all the colours. Yep. Hopefully faster than the machine. Yep. And probably the machine will be a bit more charismatic and have less spots than Stephen as well. <laughs> it's a nice guy. <laughs> Scottish as well. <laughs> and he is dressed like he is about ready to go on tour with Pink Floyd. He's got black trousers, a natty metal belt, and a white shirt that's open. He's ready to replace Nick Mason as a drummer. He he has a real aging rock star look, and I'm I'm there for it, Luke. I'm there for it. I wish I could dress like that now. And we now know who Dominic Diamond's target is for this week when interviewing a celebrity. It is just like, who am I going to dunk on this week? I mean, it was Danny Baker in episode one. It was Helen Daniels in episode two. It's Stephen Hendry in episode three. Yeah, because he asked Jimmy how it's different beating the machine to Stephen Hendry. And Jimmy doesn't really give the best answer. He's no. just like, oh, I'll pot the red and all the colours and hopefully be faster than the machine. I read my eyes, well... That is the challenge. That's it. That's a challenge. And Dom does say that the machine might be a bit more charismatic and have less spots. <laughs> I like Jimmy. Jim, that catches Jimmy off guard because he's like, oh, that's nice. And he's Scottish as well. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's because he's Scottish as well. <laughs> There's not a lot for us to say about Jimmy White's whirlwind snooker because we've said it all before. Although this is the Mega Drive version, which didn't come out until 93, 94 and was an exclusive to Europe and Australia. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that, you're absolutely right. Like, I just assumed that this would have been the same one, but it had been the Amiga version that we would have had back in Series 1, right? Yeah, it would be the Amiga or PC or the Atari ST version. And whilst the Mega Drive version runs at a lower frame rate and resolution than its home computer counterparts, and whilst there is no in-game music, and indeed less sound effects, which means, Luke, we're probably not going to hear this noise... <laughs> The sound effects we do hear are still of a higher quality than the IBM PC version because they relied on a one-channel PC speaker, whereas, of course, the Mega Drive has the Yamaha stereo Doobree Watsit. Mm -hmm. While you can play this game with a standard joypad, it is one of the few games that is best experienced with the Sega mouse. This and Megalomania, that's about it. Yeah, playing Megalomania with the mouse would be such a better way of playing that game. If you want to see who wins this Man Machine Challenge, join us after the break. Knorr presents great news for pasta cooks. The pasta cube. Simply add to the water and cook your pasta as normal. For delicious pasta with a subtle flavor of garlic and herbs. How do I cook pasta like the Italians? I cheat. Knorr. They've got the know-how. When you want to play the hottest, fastest, most advanced fighting game ever, forget everything else and play Doom 2 on your PC. No other game gives you the incredible realism, the 360-degree smooth scrolling and explosive action like Doom 2. It's easy to start playing, but it won't let you stop. Doom 2, it will consume you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When was the last time you experienced a scintillating, electrifying, mind-blowing, painfully funny roller coaster ride of a movie? I don't know. That's a good question. A movie that's a brilliant, audacious, ambitious masterpiece. This doesn't sound like the usual mindless chit-chat. <laughs> you? you won't know the facts until you see the fiction. Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Yummy. Previews Thursday opens Friday. We're putting the tent break in 7549. Desperation. Where do you want to move to? Anywhere I don't care. Innocence. This is a rather nasty job. The child will be taken about the social services. Content. Now we've arrested this guy 46 times. Are you going to persist in answering no reply? No reply. Welcome to the real world. The Nick, tomorrow at 9 on 4. We've got something of a first on Games Master today because Jimmy White is going to attempt a red-black colours clear-up in a faster time than the Mega Drive can do a similar clear-up on the actual Jimmy White snooker game. Helping me out is Games Master's own Andy Hutchinson. Andy, there's a lot of burning questions in snooker just now, probably the most flame-drilled of which is, is John Virgo funny? Oh, I'm afraid not, Dominic. He's about as funny as a bank holiday Monday in real. I feared as much. And uh, do you have any tips for Jimmy today? Yeah, I hear that Mr. Gennard in the 215 at Newmarket is a good each-way bet. Okay, thank you. We'll bear that one in mind, Andy. We come back from the break and Andy Hutchinson is in the booth to make fun of John Virgo. Huge slam on the Welsh tourism board out of nowhere. I've never had a holiday in real, so I can't pass comments. Me neither, and therefore we managed to avoid insulting any <laughs> listeners we may have in real. Although the chances of that are fairly slim, because really nothing ever happens in real. I'm not even sure they know what a podcast is. <laughs> but Andy is on stand-up form tonight because Dom says, do you have any tips for Jimmy? And Andy comes back with, oh yeah, Mr. Gonard in the 215 at Newmarket is a good each-way bet. Also, points for the name Mr. Gonard because you can't <laughs> say gonads. Gonard really made me laugh. I just put two words. Fucking brilliant. Yeah. I loved that line. And it made Jimmy laugh as well. Now, what Games Master said at the start of this is that the Mega Drive never misses. And we do see, through the demo thing, that the Mega Drive never misses. But Jimmy misses a fair number of his shots here. So he's got to be very quick on the draw to kind of like recover from his misses. This is a challenge where I would imagine there aren't going to be many audio clips you're going to be able to drop in for this. And there isn't a huge amount to discuss. 
But I would recommend you watch this challenge because it is a fascinating challenge to watch. It's just not an easy one to describe because for most of the challenge, Jimmy is a ball behind. He's slowly, painfully slowly regaining microseconds of time, slowly closing the gap between him and the Mega Drive. And it's not until like the penultimate ball that they suddenly find themselves on equal footing. Because he basically ends up a ball behind from the very first shot. Because the Mega Drive pots, he misses. And he misses again as well, I think. But somehow, like you said, it's those microsecond incremental like savings that he's making by getting around the board quicker than the Mega Drive does. The challenge comes down to the Mega Drive only has the black to go and Jimmy only has the black to go. And it's whoever strikes the ball first. And I'd say Jimmy wins it by a second, maybe a second and a half. It is super tight, but man best machine. And Jimmy wins the challenge. I honestly think this may be one of the best celebrity challenges we've had ever. It's certainly the most different. And like that's what makes it interesting. And that's what makes it kind of fun to watch because this isn't just Jimmy White playing a game. This isn't just Jimmy White commentating like, like he did in the first time. It was like, well, you know, he's playing against Archer McLean or whatever. This is Jimmy White playing snooker against a Mega Drive demo machine that is also playing snooker. Which never misses. Which never misses. So that's so wildly different from anything we've had on this show, which makes it so beautifully unique. I mean, the closest we've come before this is Sonic Blast Man, because that's one where you have athletes in that are not trying to manhandle a joystick. They're actually using their athletic prowess and their natural skills. But really, the game itself, it's, it's no different to the whole test your might, test your strength carnival games. But that's still impressive because you are seeing how hard they can hit things, how deadly and precise their punches are. But this challenge just takes it to the next level because you are testing the skill of a man against the programmed never miss skill of a computer that is emulating a snooker player. It's one of the few times we've had a celebrity challenge where I've gone, this isn't just a gimmick. We're actually seeing the guest put their skills to the test. Yeah, I mean, I. We'll dive into this more when we get to the end of the episode, but as some potential spoilers for my thoughts on this episode, I didn't make much of the either challenges that, that precede this and come after this, but I really, really like the celebrity challenge. The only thing I really had to say about the challenge outside of sort of like, you know, the spectacle of it all is this felt like, because Dom and Andy are very good double act. They've got a very good routine going and I very much enjoyed them becoming snooker commentators for this, where they go... Up the red. Yes! Always in. But the computer's part of the black, so the computer's ahead, Andy. That's right. Jimmy's just lining up this black now. Okay, this is not an easy one because he's got that inverse angle on it. Very hushed voices. And Jimmy has always just missed the black there, as a snooker commentator would, because they don't want to talk too loudly and put off the snooker players. And I could really feel Dom and Andy giggling to themselves as they were like, we're going to take this as seriously as fucking possible. And that's going to make it even funnier. Also, the crowd, apart from the occasional shout, which is something you get in the Crucible, were very quiet and respectful as well. Yeah. But Dom said that Jimmy has proven once and for all that man will defeat machine for now. <laughs> oh, that's ominous. Now, uh, Jimmy, that was very close at the end there. Uh, a bit of troubles with that first black, though. Well, what happened? Well, yeah, it was a bit difficult, the first black. Um, it's a bit of a gap. And, uh, yeah, we run out of space the there. Black, but, uh, 
apart from that, we're yeah. okay. So you don't have problems out of the crucible then? No, we don't. We have a bit of a squeaky floor, but <laughs> the, the floor is there. Yeah. But post-match, Jimmy bases all his initial troubles on the lack of a floor. Because we're in hell, or a church, mm-hmm. and therefore they're not the normal places you find snooker tables, which are quite big. And so from what I could gather by what he was saying is he essentially didn't have enough floor all the way around the snooker table to adopt the pose he normally would to take those shots, which he says, you know, the crucible's got a squeaky floor, but at least it's there. Yeah. If that is true, and if that is genuinely the reason why he biffed those first couple of shots, can you imagine if he'd had full flooring all the way round? It'd have wiped the floor that was there with the computer. I mean, they don't call him whirlwind for nothing. But like, yeah, like I genuinely think that could be the case. Because it's unlike Jimmy to biff a shot like that, particularly the first one, which is very much like it's set up for you to pass. And it's very much just, it felt like it was alien territory for him, not just the fact that he was playing against a Mega Drive, but just in his playing space. I mean, not many snooker players are used to playing in a church, flames and minions and, and the river sticks. Yeah, you don't arrive to the crucible on the river sticks at all. Don't you? I mean, I've never been. I'm just going to presume that's the case. We never see. They're always just sat in the chairs, really, when, when the coverage starts. You, you don't know. The Reaper could be behind the curtain. He could have brought them across the river sticks. Oh, I'm in a good mood after that challenge. I'm hoping the consultation zone leaves me in a good mood as well. Games Master, I've heard that there are a load of firebombs hidden in Super Metroid on the SNES. Is that true? You mustn't believe all you hear, but in this case it happens to be true. Luckily, it's quite simple. First, collect the jump boots from Warfare Area A. Once done, return to Winster Area F and destroy the evil crane to get the various Go back again to Warfare, this time to Area F, and collect the speed booster. Back in Northland, eh? Dash past the rooms with the closing doors to get the crucial ice beam. Finally, return to Princeton Area A. Once there, use the ice to reach the top of the chasm and follow the path right down the left. And you'll finally be rewarded with those super fire bombs. Ah, oh, thanks, guys, Master. This first entry here, as far as I can tell, Games Master's tip is play Super Metroid. I cannot fault that as a tip. <laughs> he's he's not wrong. If someone was to ask me, can you offer me any tips for Super Metroid? My number one tip for Super Metroid would be play Super Metroid. Your life will be richer for it. If you were watching this in 1994 and you had like a notepad out ready to like write down any hints, there's no way you're writing this down on a first pass because he writes down like the, a good chunk of the game that you've got to get through. And I love it because once again, it's the Games Master going, oh, this, this is simple. And then it is like a heist movie level plan of like, well, first you go to North Area A, then you return to Area F, then you defeat the boss to get the Varia suit, then collect the speed booster, also in Area F, back to an Area A, past the closing doors to the ice beam, finally freeze enemies to get up a shaft, use them as a stepping stone, then drop down to the left and you'll find a room full of firebombs. Simple. Yeah, exactly. Part of that there, well done for you, by the way, of getting through that in one take. I nearly lost it. I nearly stacked it halfway through, but I found the faster I got, the easier it was. Part of the steps in that is beta boss. Like, fucking hell, Games Master. It is arguably one of the most popular Metroid games. It's certainly one of the most highly regarded. It was lauded all the way along. 
I cannot understate how influential this game is. This, along with Castlevania Symphony of the Night, is credited with establishing an entire subgenre, Metroidvania. Yeah. It's still popular today with the speedrunning community because it's such a um such a complicated and vast map that it's not one that is super easily beaten. I mean, people have got it down to ridiculous times. I don't think it's done in the same way that some people glitch through Mario. No, it's really not. Like there are some there are a lot of like glitches that you can do in the game, but you're right, it's not to the degree of particularly Sonic games, which you can massively glitch through. Super Metroid is about knowing the quickest route possible. Glitchless runs of this are fascinating to watch. And it even comes down to because like I I love a Super Metroid run at Games Done Quick, whether it is the summer or the winter event, because you always have the bonus incentive of save the animals or kill the animals. Because at the end of the game, there's a little, when you are escaping from the planet blowing up, there is an area you can go to that is full of animals that are trapped and you can free those animals so they all run off free and are are saved. And it is always a war of fans of Super Metroid of like, do you kill the animals or do you save those animals? Do you go and get them or do you just ignore them completely and head off back to your ship? Luke, we're going to have to find a way to talk more about Super Metroid. We'll work it out. We're going to work out a way to do it. Games Master. I'm really good at mapping machines on the Game Gear. Is there any way of making it harder? Indeed there is. When you've almost completed the qualifying lap, turn the boat right round and go back over the line. You will now find that you've got super turbo speed. That should give you speed sweets, Happy. Thanks, Game Master. Now this is a tip that I feel like we've had something similar to before, which is how to make micro machines faster. I'm pretty sure we had this on like the net, or might have been the Mega Drive version of the game. It's definitely one we've had before. Uh, the last one was done with a code, and this one is just in the qualifying race. You get to the end and then reverse across the finish line in your speedboat. But as I said at the time, and I bears repeating now, micro machines does not need to be faster especially on a console with a screen as blurry and difficult to see at times as the sodding Game Gear. Although I suppose if you make the game faster, you might get more than one race in before the battery's done. <laughs> That's why they were after this tip. Are there any power-ups hidden inside the moth on the Jaguar Games Master? Actually, there are. And the clue to get them should have been given to you while flying over the planet Kodos. There, etched on the surface, you'll see the code 6009. Go to the planet selection screen and enter this code on the keypad. You will be transported to a new universe with planets whose names are unknown. Select the planet in the bottom right of this galaxy and you will find it to be the most bountiful planet in the solar system. Collect all the power-ups there to give your car extra weapons and fuel. That's great, Games Master, thanks. I honestly thought we would never see this game again. But here she is to ask where we learned to fly. Where did you learn to fly? And finding this unknown planet, which is full of bountiful supplies. You have to look for a code on the planets and etched into the surface, you should see the numbers 6009. So almost kind of an extended 69, if you will. Indeed, yeah. It's uh, And it's clearly so difficult to see that they don't show any clips of it. Yeah, that one confused me a little, but either way, you don't need to see it now because they've given you the code here. I think we've said pretty much everything there is to say about Cybermorph in the past. I'd be amazed if it comes back again, but I'm pretty sure I might have said that in the final episode of Series 3. 
and here we are a handful of episodes later and it's bloody back again so it's like jason voorhees of the video <laughs> yeah. it's the jason voorhees of video games so let's dive into our final challenge what are we playing games master my final challenge today is on the neo geo platformer top hunter contestants have one minute to earn as many points as they can as they battle their way through an army of unsavory adversaries a transporter is available for those players who prefer a little artificial aid and once acquired should improve their performance dramatically good luck This is a game I am not familiar with whatsoever. This game is considered a bit of a hidden gem. I mean, not so much now because lots of websites, including HG101, who I recently guested on another episode of, talking about uh, the more recent video game, The Wolf Among Us, but they've got an article on this on their website. And because of sites like that and retrospective collections like the ACA Neo Geo series and the SNK Arcade Classics Volume 1, Lots of people now know about this game, which is Top Hunter, Voddy and Kathy. Side-scrolling arcade platform game released for the Neo Geo in 1994. So this is quite a recent release. And it was one of the few Neo Geo games to be dubbed the 100 Mega Shock because the cartridge size was over 100 megabits. Wow. It was twice the size of the largest SNES cartridge of the time, which was, I think, Star Ocean. Well, yeah, it's nuts because like Mega Drive, their whole thing at the moment is their 24 meg cartridges. And later on, as the Neo Geo aged, the 100 megabits cartridges became more and more common to the point where they actually dropped the branding because it's like, well, it doesn't matter now. It's not actually that impressive. But the basic plot of the game is that top bounty hunters of the galaxy, Roddy and Kathy, are sent to put a stop to a colony of galactic pirates called the Claptons. Four high-ranking members of the Claptons have taken control of four elemental planets, Big rewards are offered for the capture of Sly, Misty, Mr. Big Man, and Dr. Burn. Mr. Big Man. Mr. Big Man. That's my wrestling giving game now. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like an Austin Powers baddie. The top hunters battle their forces and destroy the commander's war machines, but they all get away. In the last hunt, Roddy and Cassie will have to battle in Captain Clapton's mothership, defeat the four commanders again, and take care of the captain once and for all. It's a pretty good game. It's a lot of fun. It's actually more fun than it looks here. It's not just a standard side-scrolling arcade platform. You can shift between different planes. Yeah. So there's a foreground and a background, and it's not just a gimmick. It's actually instrumental to completing the game. But it was released in the arcade. It was released for the home system. It also got a Neo Geo CD port, which, like most Neo Geo CD ports, had a rearranged soundtrack in Redbook Audio. And the Japanese version had five endings cool five secret endings which you unlocked by finishing off one of the bosses in the final stages boss rush with a specific special move which you then had to follow by defeating clapton with a special move as well and another special ending is unlocked by defeating all five bosses in this manner the western version removed this probably because they just thought no one is ever going to get that far and i suspect they were right yeah i would have thought so and here to play our final challenge, we have Colin Quinton and Jonathan Platts. Okay. Now, Jonathan, you were telling us earlier that your favourite film is Lethal Weapon, but you'd rather be Arnold Schwarzenegger than Mel Gibson. Why is that? 
Well, he's bigger and tougher and he's got quite a lot of money. Yeah. And of course, Mel Gibson doesn't have any money, does he? Oh, no, he has quite a lot of <laughs> Mel money. Mel's skint, isn't he? He's down at DHSS every Friday without bail. <laughs> Sorry, I just found that very amusing. Um, okay, right then. Um, moving on to you now, Colin. Um, now, you, you were telling us that your favourite band is Ace of Bass. Is that true? No, I lied. It's uh, actually Too Unlimited. What do you like about Too Unlimited? Is it the, uh, the banal lyrics or the annoyingly repetitive theme tunes? No, it's the babe. Oh, the babe. Yeah. Great. Playing this game is Colin and Jonathan, and we have this conversation because Jonathan's favourite movie is Lethal Weapon, but he'd rather be Arnie than Mel Gibson. And when asked why, he says, because Arnie has got more money and he's tougher. And Dominic is sort of taken aback and is like, oh yeah, because Mel Gibson's got no money at all, has he? He's around the DSS every, every bloody week, isn't he? Isn't he, Jonathan? And he giggles to himself, just like, that really made me laugh. But benefit of hindsight, Arnold was the smarter choice, just saying. <laughs> yeah, just saying, actually. Speaking of smarter choices or lack thereof. Yeah, like Dominic here. I mean, cl- <laughs> So I'd imagine that Dominic asked him a question, but, you know, in the green room, I was like, oh, who do you like? And he's like, too unlimited. He's like, awesome. I'm going to set you up here for failure by asking if you like a good band, Ace of Bass, so I can then dunk on your answer of too unlimited when we're out there on the set. And then Dom asks what he likes about them. Is it the banal lyrics or the annoyingly repetitive theme tunes? Uh, he says, with no hint of irony, no, it's the babe. God, yeah, it is a case of, you know, why do you like Too Unlimited? Well, because I'm a teenage boy, there's Anita, the rest can't be broadcast on Channel 4, oh even God. in this show. Dominic's face is so funny. Just looks at the camera being like, a, Ugh, I can't believe he said that on TV. Dom sums it up by just going, great. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Make sure your pets are locked safely indoors because Dave Perry is with us. Dave, now, I reckon there's two ways of going about this. Would I be correct? That's right. There are two things our contestants can do. Firstly, they could, as they go through the level, they could beat up the characters they meet along the way and pick up the coins they get to collect more points. Or they can ignore the characters, go for a sp- straight speed dash to get to the transporter at the end, and then use that to smash their way through things to get even more points. And now we've got to make the awkward segue to Dave Perry. Lock up your pets. Made me laugh. It made me laugh. Like uh, Dave. So Dave Perry is basically this series whipping boy, and it's actually like Dominic told, said about this in our interview that we did with him a couple of weeks ago. He said there was only one person that kept taking the show too seriously, and that man was Dave Perry. And he said, and that's what led to Mario sixty four. And you see it when you watch the episodes back. Simon is this sort of like pithy. Nope, I just think everything is rubbish. Andy and Dom have got this sort of like, you know, they've got this double act that they're doing. But Dave Perry is still in series three mode where he's like, no, this is a serious gaming competition show and I'm going to commentate on it as such. And Dominic just takes the piss out of him at every single opportunity he gets, which is anytime Dave Perry is on screen. Yeah, I mean, here he sets him up by just going, oh, there are two ways of going about this, aren't there? Would I be correct in saying that, Dave? And then Dave goes into his spiel about the two different ways to approach the game. And Dominic literally tries not to fall asleep. You see his head dropping and he's like... (laughs) And because Dave's not looking at him, Dave has no idea he's doing it. It's very childish. It's very immature. It's kind of mean. Yes, I laughed. (laughs) But the two ways of playing it break down into you can either use a mech or not use a mech. That's kind of it. And with the spiel over, Don reminds us it's most points in a minute and Jonathan is up first. 
It's not a fast-moving game, as I mentioned earlier, and that's not helped when Jonathan is really slow to get starting in this game. He he doesn't feel like he's that familiar with it, but pretty soon he starts beating people up with regular abandon and like pulling these levers that are in the air and it drops gems down or causes other things to happen. And crucially, you only go for the one that's on the left because that gives you gems. The one on the right gives you time, which is not needed in this challenge. It's something to remember when we get to Colin playing next. But at the halfway point, Dom asks Dave how he's doing. And Dave says, oh, not bad, but you'd like to see him beating up more bad guys. More violence, Jonathan. We need more violence. And with 20 seconds left, he gets that mech transporter, which is one of the reasons why this game is considered very much a precursor to Metal Slug. Mm. But he gets the transporter, he goes into the background, he does miss a large amount of bad guys and therefore points, but he stomps on a couple of them. And I love the kind of Looney Tunes-esque, they get compressed down to paper thin. That really made me chuckle. Yeah, it's a good looking game is this. And as the clock runs down, he stomps one more bad guy for good measure and ends with 9,400 points. And Dave says, wasn't a bad score, but he did miss a lot of points along the way. Yeah, and like Colin is a lot quicker at the game, but he's also much sloppier at the game. Like he is taking hits out the wazoo right out the gates. See, my note said, oh, he's much more dynamic than Jonathan, and then followed it with, but I'm not entirely sure he actually knows what he's doing with it. Because he moves around a lot more, but he also, he doesn't pull down the levers. He doesn't get the bad guys. When he does try and pull down a lever, it's painful because first of all, he uses the wrong button combination and then his alignment isn't in place. I feel bad for him to a degree. Not, Not completely because after a while, it's just like, yeah, mate, you're not very good at this game, are you? It's inevitable that he's going to die. I think like Dom and Dave are quite surprised when he does like crap out and he does die with like 30 seconds still on the clock. He only got halfway through his time, but I was watching him being like, I don't think you're going to make it through this whole challenge, mates. 30 seconds left and only 4,900 points scored. It doesn't take a genius at math. He lost. Jonathan won. Now, Jonathan, I must admit, we were a bit concerned about your score. We didn't think it would be enough, but in, in the end it was. Why do you think that was? Oh, it's good, but it's just not good enough. I think that is probably the biggest understatement since I don't know when. Colin, does your mum know you're out? I mean, what happened? I don't know, I just fell apart, I suppose. It was, it was nearly as big a mystery as um, two unlimited's continued chart success. But this is the line that made me laugh the most in this episode. Because, you know, he interviews Jonathan, who is very magnanimous and said, you know, Colin was good, just not good enough, which is complete baloney. Jonathan was just a much better player. And Dominic looks at Colin and just says, does your mum know you're out? Fucking savage. (laughs) That was my biggest laugh of the whole episode. Colin's just like, I don't know what happened. And Dom considers this as big a mystery as 2 Unlimited's continued chart success. (laughs) Dom is on fire in this episode. We're still trying to take that kind of approach of not punching down on the contestants and the kids. No such rule applies to Mr. Diamond of 1994. (laughs) Absolutely not. Part Scott, part shark. There's blood in the water. We're out of time here. I'm off to put that two unlimited tape at the top of your pile for when your mates come round. We'll see you next show. Bye-bye. I do like this kind of image that Dom is giving. It's like, when I'm not doing this show, because I'm in hell, I'm essentially going around acting like the devil or the boogeyman and making people's lives unpleasant. It's a fun little bit of world building. Yeah. You know, that it's kind of playing up to the environment he's in. And yeah, it's it's this season's version of whatever Auntie Marisha is cooking up in the kitchen. 
Yeah, it's a really fun outro. And that is going to do us for this episode. To put my cards out on the table, I wasn't a fan of, of the challenge at the start or the challenge at the end. The challenge in the middle absolutely saved this episode for me. Outside of the, the features and the reviews, which I thought were very interesting, the celebrity challenge here is the, is the big star of this episode. What did you make of it? I'm similar to you. The first and last challenges weren't great. The reviews and the news section, like the reviews, we saw some cool games. We saw some games that we haven't really talked about before. And then we come to that celebrity challenge. And I don't think we've ever been in a situation... We've been in a situation before where the Celebrity Challenge has saved an episode because of who the celebrity is. Macho Man, Randy Savage, I'm talking about you here. But we've never been in a situation where the skills of the celebrity have actually been the deciding factor. And because of the way they did this, because they didn't just have Jimmy kind of like playing with a Mega Drive mouse against the Mega Drive, because they actually decided to put real world versus virtual world we had a wholly unique challenge on the show and something that was really quite interesting and exciting to watch. And one of my biggest criticisms of that challenge is one that couldn't be avoided, and that is it was edited for time. Mm. And I wish it hadn't been. I'd have rather had one less feature and more time on that celebrity challenge. You know, we could have had the, um, the Nessie feature next week or some other time. I would have liked to have actually had a split screen and seeing that thing play out in real time. I, I completely agree with you as well, because if it's it's so unlike Games Master, that challenge, which makes it really interesting. And I know that Series 4 is all about making it this magazine show. We're moving away from the challenges. We want to focus on the news. We want to focus on the features. But yeah, I like you. I'd have liked a much longer version of that challenge because it was fascinating stuff. And it is the most interesting thing on this show. And while the other challenges weren't that great, that is no small feat because, as we said, the news and the reviews, hey, we've got early virtual reality, we've got motion rides, we've got like massive 3D VR Nessie hunting, we've got Doom 2. Yeah. To say it's the best thing on this episode is not a small feat. It does leave me very conflicted, though, because this is still a game challenge show. I know, yeah. But then again, I do look at the first and last challenges. And while the challenges aren't great, you know what does make them? Dominic. It's Dominic and the commentators. Yeah. They make it. So I think without the commentary perks for the first and third challenges, I would be looking at late 70s to low 80s for this episode. I had the exact same score, by the way. I'm going to give it a bit of a boost because of the commentary. And I'm going to go to 86. Wow, that's a big old boost. It's a big old boost, partly because of the commentary, but also there is a lot in there for that Jimmy White challenge. Full confession, I love Jimmy White. I think he's a great guy, very talented. I really love the style he was rocking, but he's not terribly interesting. Mm. Like he's, he's clearly not in his element on that show, but you put him on the table, he's golden, and it makes for one of the most genuinely interesting and intense and exciting celebrity challenges we've had probably ever uh, yeah i initially wrote down 76 percent like that was like my gut reaction to it because uh, as i said i wasn't keen on the nova storm challenge or the, the top hunter one either i wanted to bump it up for that jimmy white thing i also i'm, I'm tempted to also bump it because you're right like dominic and co particularly in the nova storm challenge are very very good together Plus, like, I don't think I've given enough credence to the, the fun I had with the feature, with some of those news items and with um, uh, Doom 2 and the like. But I don't think I, I'm, I'm going to go lower than you, but I'm going to 
and that is pretty much all for Jimmy White. No, that is that is absolutely fair. I mean, it's it might be the biggest disparity between our scores we've had. Certainly, the biggest in a while. Certainly, in a while. Yeah, we've been very close to each other uh, in recent times. We're just growing apart, Luke. It's, <laughs> it's going to happen eventually. I really thought us being further apart in distance was pulling us closer towards in scores, but maybe the time is now affecting that. Maybe it is, or maybe it's your new career as an international footballer. <laughs> I just I don't know. <laughs> moonlighting i am but that is going to wrap it up for this episode thank you all so much for listening you all rule you can find us on social media at under pod on instagram at under.console and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com and if you want to interact with us and other listeners of under consultation in real time you can join us on our discord where right now we are full of video game news we're full of the euros we're full of a lot of things but we're having a good time whilst doing it it's a great vibrant community the under consultation discord details in the show notes and on our social media and you can support this podcast monetarily over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod where you'll get access to ucp extra our patron exclusive show where we do this format but for other shows from the 90s like finders keepers and funhouse we've also done nightmare dale supermarket sweep we've even done animated shows like the real ghostbusters and recently earthworm gym there's a whole host of stuff there you'll also get our monthly community show under console nation where we just answer your questions, have a chat, talk about our months. It's a grand old time. We do that live on YouTube every single month and it's available on demand afterwards as well. And at the £5 level, you get next week's show one week early and ad-free. Ash, what do they get at the £10 level? At the £10 level, they get a Patreon bonus pack, which has a Patreon-exclusive mug, which given the current weather will be good to keep a frosty iced coffee in. They also, in that mug, and you should probably remove this before filling it with a beverage, Stickers, badges, retro sweeties, retro trading cards, and a voucher giving you £5 off our first Under Consultation t-shirt, which is available at underconsultation.com. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Tubard, Simon, Sean Hannon, Sean Dunn, Robert, Rich, Pink Lithium, Nick, Misha, Matt, Kevin, Jamie, Gordon, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Colin, Cliff, Alexis, Adam Warrington, Adam Rigby and Adam D. Thank you all so much for listening and we will see you in seven days time for episode four of series four. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.